Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this week we're talking about something you can make, you can keep, you can even carry to the grave. Secrets. A secret is... I haven't had sex with a woman in about a year. My, my family had alcoholism. Uh, my sexuality. I guess that I'm not sure that I really want to go to law school. Those were some of the secrets we heard from Washingtonians around town. And over the next hour, we'll bring you even more stories about the clandestine, the covert, the down low, and the hush-hush. We'll hear about the hidden side of a prominent D.C. politician. Well, he kept it secret from the public and really from all but his doctor, his wife, and his very closest friend. And we'll hit the water to hear secrets from down below. So that myth kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and maritime historians refuted it, but the the myth kept getting bigger. And that's what led to the discovery. But first, we're going to shine a spotlight on a secret that, more than 60 years ago, was a reality for many people in Washington and around the country. You want to keep a picture of Millie on your desk, Bob? Go right ahead. If I have to throw a, oh, my darling Jim, to the girls at the coffee counter, no real harm. But lately, we're living a falsehood full-time, and it is exhausting. We don't even get to have the real relationships we're supposed to be protecting because we got to be show ponies for the safety and comfort of the people we can't stand. This is a scene from Perfect Arrangement, a play premiering at the 6th Annual Source Festival in Northwest D.C. Perfect Arrangement takes place in Georgetown. The year is 1950, McCarthyism is creeping its way through the government, and the U.S. Department of State has begun purging suspected homosexuals, or deviants as they're called, from the department's ranks. The belief, you see, is that the so-called questionable morals of these individuals might make them more susceptible to communism. Every poor bastard that you fire has to walk right by my desk, sobbing and destroyed, and I sit there staring at my wedding band, feeling every inch the fraud I am. And today, that got to me. When Oswald Neves, who you know is not a damn fag, walked out sobbing with his life destroyed, unemployable, fired for something that isn't true for him, but is very true for the four of us, that just got to me. This character is Norma, a State Department staffer who's entered the supposedly perfect arrangement of the play's title. Norma is married to Jim Baxter, a plucky young high school teacher. And next door are the Martindales, Millie, a fastidious homemaker, and Bob, Norma's boss at the State Department. But that's where the falsehood Norma mentioned comes in, because the whole thing is a lie. Norma and Millie are actually lovers, as are Jim and Bob. I think I fell in love with it when I read the stage direction that they come and go to each other's apartments through a closet. I was like, okay, I'm in. Perfect Arrangement director Linda Lombardi says something else that attracted her to the play? It's politics. The time period of 1950 and McCarthyism and the whole persecution of the other. And then there's the humanity of these characters. And in their real relationships, they are grounded. In their pretend relationships, they are mayhem and insanity. And it's just a really beautiful amount of insanity. Insanity. And as we heard Norma say before, plenty of show ponying as a pair of, ah, shucks, golly, gee, all-American couples. Take the opening scene, where Bob's boss, Theodore Sunderson, and his wife, Kitty, join Bob and Millie and Norma and Jim for dinner at one of the apartments. You're such a 
card, Bob. An absolute card. <laughs> Don't encourage him, Mrs. Henderson. He goes on with those zingers all day at the office. I've got a million of them. Well, he does. I'm not missing anything good, am I? Oh, no, darling. Bob's telling jokes. Oh, golly. Let me know when it's over. Jim, where are those Baxter specials you promised? Coming right up. Hey, Millie, where do you keep the olives? Uh, check the icebox. Of course. That's capital. Coming up, folks. You have these people who have more progressive ideas than their society allows. Andrew Keller plays Bob Martindale. For me, it's really interesting seeing how they're very different from the society, but also how the society still has its claws in them. And not only that, says Natalie Kutcher, who portrays Norma, but playwright Topher Payne has done an excellent job of making these characters' issues resonate with anyone. Something that Topher said when we met him was that the play focuses on the moment right before these characters really take ownership of themselves. And that is something that every single person goes through, whether you're gay, whether you're straight, whether you're yada, yada, yada. Sorry, I know this is hard. You know, I don't know how much longer this can last. This arrangement gives us a lot of freedom that other people don't have. I love our life. When we're home, alone. When we're home, alone, I love our life. When we're out getting manicures with Kitty Sunderson and gossiping about our husbands, I am frankly underwhelmed by my existence. Everyone puts on a public face, Mama. People are entitled to private lives. Yeah, private lives, not secret. And that delineation between private and secret. Director Linda Lombardi says many same-sex couples today often feel pressured to opt for the latter. I mean, we're wrapped up in marriage equality right now. And the fact that we're still at a place where someone else thinks they have the right to question and decide who should be able to get married. Government statistics show that 54 State Department workers were fired for suspected homosexuality in 1950, 119 in 1951, and 134 in 1952. The number of dismissals for more straightforward security concerns during the same years barely even compare, 12, 35, and 70, respectively. Department officials promised they would only investigate people suspected of homosexuality after developing a strong case against them. But we now know many findings were based on information that was really subjective, like how a person spoke or behaved or just plain looked. As one veteran courier recalled, during the McCarthy era, everyone was presumed to be a little light on his feet until proved otherwise. Perfect Arrangement is just one of two dozen theatrical events in this year's Source Festival, which runs from June 7th through the 30th at Source in Northwest D.C. For a complete schedule of festival events, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We move now from 1950s Washington to the D.C. of the early 90s. In those days, a man named John A. Wilson headed up the D.C. Council. As one of the most powerful and popular men in D.C. politics, Wilson was considering a bid for mayor. And if he'd run, many say he would very likely have won. But turns out John Wilson had a darker side, one which led to an event that shook the district 20 years ago this month. Jacob Fenston has the story. 
On May 18, 1993, John Wilson went to work as usual. Clerk, you want to determine the quorum? As council chairman, Wilson was presiding over a grueling, day-long public hearing. I would like to inform the council that the chairman has over 40 witnesses today. And if you do not have to pontificate, I would appreciate it. Wilson sounds sleepy and distant during the hearing, but between sessions, he made time to catch up with his old friend and colleague, Marion Barry. And we spent about an hour and a half just talking about all kinds of things, you know, some light, some heavy. And Barry says Wilson was different. He seemed happier than he'd been in a long time. I'm almost convinced that John had made his mind up. He was going to do this. He felt free. Hearing stand adjourned until Friday at... Uh, 10 p.m. 10 a.m. The next day, May 19th, John Wilson did not show up to work. It's a morning his colleagues still remember. Councilmember Jack Evans. There was some reason we were all getting together. So most of the council members were there. Uh, we were at breakfast that, uh, that John, that he was chairman of the council, that he and, he and staff had arranged. Former council member Frank Smith. It was a breakfast that we were all uh, waiting for him and for the mayor to come, Mayor Kelly. And uh, he didn't show up, which was unusual for him. Uh, to be late. And so we sat there for a while thinking that he was going to show in a minute. We started calling, no answer. Bridget Quinn was Wilson's chief of staff. I sent a staff person over to his house. He got in and unfortunately found John. She told the mayor, Sharon Pratt Kelly, and Kelly went to the council members who were still waiting. Sharon said, I got some bad news for you. They just found John Wilson hung in his basement in a cold chill and all up and down my back. He was on a stretcher. By the time we got there, it was makes my voice shake even now today. You know, it was a very sad day for everyone and uh, kind of threw us all for a loop. Nobody really saw this coming. It was shocking even for Bridget Quinn, who'd worked with Wilson every day for two decades. Total surprise. Total, total surprise. I would never th- have thought it would have come to that. Never, ever, ever in a million years, no. When John Wilson died, it was uh, it was a huge story in D.C. Peter Pearl was a reporter at the Washington Post. He spent the months after Wilson's death digging into the story for a long magazine piece. Wilson, he says, was totally unique among lawmakers. He was clearly the most colorful, the most charismatic, and probably the most effective member of the D.C. government. Wilson was a D.C. institution. He came out of the civil rights movement along with other black leaders, including Mary and Barry. Wilson and Barry were elected to the first D.C. council in 1974. But along with being the city's most effective lawmaker, Pearl says Wilson was also its most erratic, a trait that could be disarming and attractive, but also just very strange. But people liked him a lot. Wilson was elected by huge margins in what was then the city's most diverse ward, Ward 2. In a frequently divided city, he brought people together. It wasn't just racial. It was rich and poor. It was young and old. It was people who never been in the same room together. Political activist Marie Drissel lives in a posh section of Adams Morgan. She supported Wilson and became a close friend starting back in the 70s. Part of Wilson's appeal was his blunt honesty. He would tell you what he thought no matter who you were and somehow make you love him for it. 
John had the ability to <laughs> criticize you right in your face. <laughs> he could just tell you off. While Wilson could connect with wealthy white Washingtonians, he was also at home in the poorest housing projects. And he didn't shy from giving fellow African Americans a hard time, too. I mean, I don't, I don't understand black people anyway wake up talking about, I don't know who I am. I have low self-esteem. Here, he's talking to a class at Howard University, sitting on the teacher's desk, holding forth and enjoying it. It's like my father used to tell me, come on over, you got a low self-esteem, I'll kick something in your ass, you know, in the process. <laughs> you know, so, so that you have something, you see. You see? You know, I don't know who I am. I'm, I'm in search of myself. You know what I mean? You're in search, all right? All you got to do is go look at any mirror, in, in any mirror. You are black. You're going to be black until the day you die. And there's always going to be somebody who comes and wants to rain on your parade because you are. Now, what you have to decide is whether or not you're going to let people rain on your parade. There's a constitution that says that you do not have a right to rain on my goddamn parade on any given day. So what happened to rain on John Wilson's parade? The time period was difficult in the city uh, in 1993. Councilmember Jack Evans again. Evans says the budget pressures in the city probably had something to do with Wilson's suicide. The economy nationwide was in, in a free fall, and the city was in a free fall. And John was head of the council and had been the finance chair. And so I think there were a lot of pressures on him to try and figure out how to run the finances of the city in the face of a uh, disastrous economy. Total deficit projected for 93, $110.9 million. That's Wilson at a press conference in 1992. He's wielding a pointer and has a series of giant charts. The mayor says we don't need furloughs. She says she wants to raise salaries in 1993. Where is the money? Look at the charts. There is no money for 93. Well, you know, John used to call himself a social liberal and a fiscal conservative. Former council member Frank Smith again. Smith says part of Wilson's undoing was the tension between these two desires. He wanted the government to live up to its social contract, providing good jobs and helping the poor, but at the same time to get the city's budget under control. Smith says Wilson also felt too keenly the troubles of others. You know, some people go down to the altar with one bag of trouble and they come back with two bags. They got their bag and somebody else's bag when they come back. And so they never can sort of lay that burden down. And I think that was John's problem. There was also a medical name for Wilson's problem, depression. He'd been fighting it his whole adult life, but he didn't talk about it, even with his close friend, Marion Barry. John kept it from us. In fact, I learned that he had tried to commit suicide two times earlier. I didn't know that. Reporter Peter Pearl says Wilson couldn't open up about his depression for fear it would ruin his career. And this came to a head as he contemplated running for mayor. Here he was, fulfilling his own dream and the expectations of a whole lot of people, and on the verge of this. And I just think that the pressure of him knowing how flawed he was, and hardly anyone else knowing, probably just at some point became so painful that he had no other way to get out of it. Five months after his death, the council voted to rename the district building after Wilson. So many pictures on the wall, you know? Councilmember Jack Evans has Wilson's old office on the main floor of what's now the John A. Wilson Building. And now, when visitors enter the marble halls from Pennsylvania Avenue, a life-size, smiling portrait of John Wilson greets them. There he is. There's John. I'm Jacob Fenston. You can see photos of John Wilson on our website, metroconnection.org. And a big thanks to the Special Collections Research Center at George Washington University for use of those photos and for the archival audio in this story. 
Special thanks as well to the D.C. Council. for a break, but when we get back, sharing secrets with strangers. We are a very exposed country, but I also think that there's always a line between what we're comfortable sharing and the parts of ourselves that we want to keep private. That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Rebecca Shear, welcome back to Metro Connection. Our theme this week is secrets, and in just a bit we'll hear from Washingtonians who've revealed rather personal stories about themselves via a rather impersonal means of communication. First, though, as the average lifespan in our country goes up, we're seeing more and more aging Americans in need of care. And the relationship between the caregiver and the caregivee often goes in one direction. The caregiver gives, and the givee, of course, receives. But sometimes it's the caregiver who secretly needs care of his or her own. Emily Berman brings us one woman's story of coping with the stress of taking care of others. Karen Mata never expected to be a caregiver, especially not at 30 years old. She had just finished law school, landed a job at a firm in D.C., and gotten married when her mom was diagnosed with stomach cancer. I didn't feel bad that I was a caregiver. I just felt like, okay, I ought to do this. Her stomach wasn't functioning, so I spent the greater part of the day trying to figure out how to get some type of nourishment in her and um, and get her medicine to her. She was taking care of her mom nearly 24 hours a day for a year and a half. Then three weeks after her mom passed away, she got a call that her dad was in the hospital and he needed her. I couldn't take the call. I mean, I, I handed it to my husband and I just crumpled. My legs just gave out. Mata got right in the car and headed down to Virginia, all the while thinking something was really wrong. Part of me is just not there, not just that I'm tired. Some capacity that I had within myself, some inner strength, it is gone. And what am I going to do? Because now my dad needs it, and I don't think I have it. The whole task of caregiving is so enormous. It's just so much in addition to your own life. Many people fall apart. Maude Harrison-Hudson is a bereavement counselor at Montgomery Hospice. She runs workshops for caregivers around the region. She says it can be tempting to try to do it all on your own, but that's actually the worst thing you can do. I think many people feel that they need to be strong for this loved one. And then sometimes there is pressure from the parent or the spouse or whoever, where they don't want someone else to be involved or to care for them, which makes it more difficult. 
Asking for help and taking breaks, even just for an hour, can help a caregiver cope with the stress. Without it, she says, many people burn out and get sick themselves. As for Karen Mata, having just cared for her mother and with more caregiving on the horizon, she knew something would have to change. Her doctor prescribed her sleeping pills so she could get some rest. Instead, they made her feel sick. She started seeing a therapist, but she didn't feel like it was helping her. I just was not in a space where I could talk about what was going on. It was just, it was so fresh. I was in it. So when Mata came across a book about yoga, it seemed as good an idea as anything. She started taking classes, and pretty soon, the hour she spent doing yoga became the anchor of her day. Within a few months, she was really into it and decided to visit an ashram in India. It was there, one day, that she went into a little boutique and noticed a necklace, a carved piece of wood hanging from a thin rope. The necklace, for some reason, caught my eye, and it wasn't because of how it looked, because it really actually wasn't something that I would wear. (laughs) There was a little tag on the necklace that explained how it was carved from wood of the Kadamba tree. It's a tree that grows in Southeast Asia and blossoms only at the sound of monsoon thunder. When I read that story, it instantly resonated with me. That's me, and that's other caregivers. When you go through turbulent times, there is a chance to actually blossom and to find strength that you didn't know that you had before. Mata now teaches stress management classes for caregivers. She combines elements of yogic breathing, movement, and group therapy to empower each person to care for him or herself. Chong Kang is in the group. She says she appreciates getting together because caregiving is one of those things people don't talk about. A lot of my friends are caregivers, but I think they like to stay hidden for some reason. But, Kang says, treating it like a secret only made caregiving more stressful. Talking about it and being with other caregivers really helped. Yeah, so we will do a practice. Mata leads the group through visualizations and deep breathing exercises. They ma and touch your belly. She's in a place now, she says, where she feels like she can help others. I'm just more stable. I'm more, I'm steadier. And I'm steadier for myself, and I'm steadier for others. I'm not perfect, but I don't expect myself to be either. She doesn't expect caregiving to ever be easy. But by taking better care of herself, she's realized it doesn't have to be quite so hard. I'm Emily Berman. The Kadumba Tree Foundation is holding a summer session for caregivers as our various groups around the city. You can find more information on our website, metroconnection.org. So this whole idea of unburdening yourself of your secret. A Maryland resident by the name of Frank Warren knows a thing or two about that. For nearly a decade, he's been running a public art project called Post Secret, where people mail their secrets to him anonymously on postcards. Kavitha Cardoza chatted with Warren and several Post Secret secret sharers to find out what it's like to keep and divulge so many secrets. We've got postcards here. We've got some envelopes. Sometimes people feel a little bit vulnerable having their secret exposed in the whole mail service, so they put their postcard in an envelope. 
Frank Warren gets 100 postcards a day, sometimes more. He goes through each one, and in fewer than 10 years, he's collected approximately 500,000 of them. Warren's postcards have led to five best-selling books and more than 600 million people visiting his website. I remember the first time I heard about the project, and I, I remember thinking... Why would there need to be a project like this? In America, everyone shares everything. (laughs) Indeed. I think with reality TV and the memoirs that are coming out almost daily, we are a very exposed country. But I also think that there's always a line between what we're comfortable sharing and the parts of ourselves that we want to keep private. The most common secret Warden receives is people admitting to peeing in the shower. But there are also the kinds of secrets that make your heart stop. Like, everyone who knew me before 9-11 thinks I'm dead. He says the project creates a safe space where people can share their innermost thoughts without feeling judged. Sandy Rosenblatt has a disorder called trichotillomania, compulsive and repetitive hair pulling. I just wrote, I pull out my upper eyelashes and I don't have any. So I use heavy black eyeliner to hide that from people. It was her secret for 31 years. But once she sent in her postcard... The question that popped up in my head was, would I be safe? Would people judge me? And, you know, went from what if to why not? After a year, she told a friend and then wrote a blog post. I had over 500 comments on the article. What I got was, I'm not the only one with the secret. There's a lot of us out there who are afraid to share it. So that led to me starting my own website, and now I blog about it. Frank Warren scans in some of his favorite postcards on his computer. He reads one of them. You promised never to do what my ex did. He would go online and cyber with women. You've never done that. You go online and cyber with men. It's a picture of a keyboard, and then certain letters have been colored, and it's sex and gay. I never even noticed that. That's fascinating, too, because I believe sometimes the most critical part of the secret is often transmitted through the artwork, not necessarily the words. If I had to pick a category of secret that I get the most of, it would be secrets like this. Secrets about that search that so many of us are on for intimacy to find that one man or woman who we can tell all of our secrets to. Sometimes the secret is the beginning, not the end. That's what happened to Mike Morgan. He was in graduate school studying English, and everyone would say, what are you going to do with that? My secret was, I'm afraid that I'm becoming a teacher because I can't make it in the real world. I had never admitted it to anybody. I hadn't even said it out loud to myself. Morga says when his postcard was published on the post-secret website, he realized he didn't have to be afraid. He had options. I'm a car salesman. (laughs) Um, I'm very, very happy now. Frank Warden says some of the most difficult secrets are those that involve suicide, like the one that reads, by the time you get this, I'll be gone. What I believe is that each of us has at least one secret that could break your heart if you knew what it was. And I think through this project... People can see that and feel it. And my hope is that it, it increases empathy. I'm Kavita Kadusa. To see photos of the postcards we've talked about and some we haven't, including a secret sent on a coconut and another on a knife, head to our website, metroconnection.org.
Time now for our monthly tour of Washington's watering holes. It's a little something we call DC dives. What is a dive bar? It's a glorious dump. It's got to have an interesting staff and an interesting crowd. It's got to be dark. It's got to be old. Typically, it's got to be cheap. This week, we'll visit a longtime favorite of residents on Capitol Hill. Jared Walker takes us inside. It's happy hour on a Friday night, and I'm at Little Pub, spelled L-I-L, a modest 18-seat drinking establishment with two pool tables, located just across the street from Eastern Market Metro Station. Customers are slowly trickling in, and a small group has camped out to watch Jeopardy on a tiny television screen perched just behind the bar. And that's where I meet patron Philip Watson, who explains the building's unique fast food history. Uh, well, initially this bar back 100 years ago, or 20 or 30 years ago, was a little tavern, which I think was local to the Maryland area. Their motto used to be, buy and buy the bag. And I remember buying a bag of little tavern burgers. Couldn't be any larger than that. Pre-cut, pickles, relish. Nickel apiece. The building still has the now extinct burger chain's signature green English Tudor facade. But inside, beers replaced burgers a little over 30 years ago. It was opened by a guy named JJ and his wife Gay Elliott. They were the original owners, conversion of the place into what is now the Little Pub. According to Philip, the bar thrived, and the Elliots quickly built up a great following in the neighborhood. But tragedy soon struck for J.J. and Gay. Three months into their opening this place, he was killed right in that pathway, the middle between here and there. Guy broke in, middle of the night after closing, and stabbed him to pieces. The Elliott family sold the business years ago. But current bartender Sue Carslow says many of those early customers continue to visit Little Pub. It's a meeting place for all the old Capitol Hill regulars. They've all known each other forever, and they've been coming into this bar for for over 20 years. So who are the regulars at Little Pub? Well, a little bit of this. Attorneys, firefighters, a lot of teachers. A little bit of that. Unemployed. We've got some crackheads. And professionals. I work for a major trade association. Philip says the bar's ethos is the key to keeping this interesting balance. The only thing that's not tolerated here is and always has been intolerance. Former bartender and longtime regular Michael Fares couldn't agree more. There's everything. There's black, white, green, purple, polka dot, straight, gay, bi, confused. You know, it's, it's a local pub where everybody gets along with everybody else. Well, almost everyone. I asked bartender Bill Greaves if the bar has had to adapt to cater to the largely gentrified neighborhood. No, we don't adapt to anything. <laughs> no, it's our way or the highway. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> Honestly. And just then, I look up at the grainy TV screen across from me and notice that host Alex Trebek is about to wrap things up on today's edition of Jeopardy. All of a sudden, bartender Sue Carslow leans over the bar and invites me to participate in one of Little Pub's age-old traditions. At 8 o'clock, we do final Jeopardy. And if you get it right, you get a free drink. And what happens if you get the question wrong? You get a free drink. 
Now who would want to change that? I'm Jared Walker. You can check out Little Pub for yourself. We have photos on our website, metroconnection.org. And if you have a favorite dive bar you think we should visit, you can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Facebook. Up next, a sunken ship's secrets come to the surface. So Dubrock is a, a physical reminder of these important events that were really shaping kind of Western history history at the time and links Delaware directly, directly to it. That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're throwing light on the covert, the cryptic, the top secret, and the hush-hush as we bring you a show all about secrets. Later on, we'll hear from a woman with an unexpected culinary secret. But first, we're going to dive into secrets of a more maritime nature in On the Coast. Brian Russo's regular series from the eastern shore of Maryland and coastal Delaware. Today, he introduces us to a British Royal Navy ship called the Debrock. The Debrock sank to the bottom of Delaware Bay way back in 1798 and wasn't recovered until the late 1980s. Researchers have been working to preserve the Debrock, and now the public can finally see the ship's remains. Brian headed up to Lewis, Delaware, to get a sneak peek at the once mighty ship with state archaeologist Chuck Fithian. Debrock is a real important link that sort of ties Delaware to the Atlantic. It ties Delaware to major events that were sweeping across Europe. And those events were the Wars of Revolutionary France, which had started in 1793 and would continue to roughly about 1801. And then they would be followed by the Wars of Napoleon. And they affected the United States. The United States was a neutral power. Its commerce was important. Its markets were important. So both of the warring parties tried to protect that or prevent it from being used by, by the other side. So Debrock is a, a physical reminder of these important events that were really shaping kind of Western history history at the time and links Delaware directly, directly to it. Tell me about the night that it went down. I, I, I read in the history books it tells us that it was a, a, a kind of freak storm that took this thing down. Tell me about that. Uh, Debrock is a ves- type of vessel called a sloop of war. They were ideal for a number of different things. They combined firepower with speed, agility, shallow draft, so it made them very versatile. And on May 25th, uh, about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, DeBrock pulls in off the Delaware Capes. DeBrock is coming to anchor when a very unusual storm system moves across the entrance of the Delaware Capes, strikes the vessel, and lays her over on her beam ends. And she fills with water and capsizes. Uh, almost one half of her crew perishes. Fast forward, of course, you know, the DeBrock ends up at the bottom of, 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 of the Delaware Bay. You know, it sits there until the 1980s. And I, and I find it very interesting why it was brought up or why it was found because, you know, legend had it uh, that, you know, as with many ships of that era, um, you know, there's always the proverbial treasure hunt. And that was what people were going after. You know, of course, there was no treasure. Well, DeBrock had acquired a, a treasure myth uh, um, around it probably beginning in the 19th century. 
the myth sort of started during the time when Dubrock had gotten separated from the convoy and she had picked up a Spanish prize. And the mistaken notion was the Spanish prize was a treasure ship. Yeah. And without really looking at the history and really what it said, uh, this, the prize it did pick up was a common merchantman and it had a cargo of coca beans and copper, which was no small thing in its own right, but it's not treasure in the sense of what everybody thought might be here. So that myth kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and maritime historians refuted it, mm -hmm. but the, the myth kept getting bigger. Yeah. And that's what led to the discovery. Uh, the real treasure, if you want to use the word, is the artifacts and the history that the Brock gives us a, an unparalleled look into. Mm -hmm. There is no other way uh, right now uh, that we could look at sort of seafaring in the Royal Navy, what it was like to be on a Royal Navy warship, what it was like to be on a sloop of war in quite the same way that, that Dubrock provides for us. As we stand here in this room at, at Cape Henlopen State Park, you've been working on this ship for the better part of two decades, almost three. Tell me about what we're looking at. This is one of the most striking visuals of a shipwreck that I've ever seen in my life. Just give people the description of what I'm looking at right now. Well, uh, the, of the hull that survives, and I'll, I'll add that there's 20,000 artifacts of all different kinds associated you know, with, with it, approximately 30% of the lower hull survives. In other words, what we have is the keel, the keelson, we have the bowel assembly, uh, we have a portion of the port side, we have the starboard side surviving up to the turn of the bilge, in other words, where the hull begins to rise up and turn into the side of the vessel itself. Uh, also associated with it is the vessel's copper sheathing, mm -hmm. which was a, a, not the newest technology, but still kind of cutting-edge maritime technology that was changing in this period. And then also uh, the copper bolts that hold her together. That was a relatively new technology. Mm -hmm. uh, the British were trying to find efficient ways to hold their ships together, to keep marine growth from attaching, and copper fittings was the solution to that. Tell me how amazed you are, even after working on this boat, that this boat has held up, you know, at the bottom of the ocean for this long. You know, right now we have to keep her wet. Uh, the timbers were waterlogged from almost two centuries under the sea, and we just can't pull the water away really quickly because what will happen is the cell structure will collapse and the hull will deteriorate. So we have to keep her wet. We have to figure out what uh, sort of treatment we need to do and then gradually start pulling the water away uh, over a period of time. But we have to figure out what we need to replace it with uh, to keep the cell walls from collapsing. It's been said before that, you know, every boat tells a story. And, and certainly a boat like this or a vessel like this that has so much history attached to it and can tell us so much about that time. Are you finding new things as you continue to work on this boat does this boat have secrets, and what else can it tell us about that time? Uh, Dubrock has been with us uh, over 27 years, and we've learned a lot. The study of the collection is still ongoing. The study of the hull is still ongoing. So I think it's pretty safe to say Dubrock's not given all our secrets up. That was Delaware State archaeologist Chuck Fithian speaking with Coastal Reporter Brian Russo. You can check out photos of the Dubrock and get a schedule for public viewings of the ship on our website, metroconnection.org. If I had a boat, I'd go out on the ocean And if I had a pony, I'd ride him on my boat And we could all together go out on the ocean Set me up on my pony on my boat 
the next secret we'll uncover today is, I gotta say, pretty trashy. I mean, like, actually really trashy. Reporter Carrie Klein is the keeper of this secret, which she recently revealed to strangers at a potluck in Petworth. First off, can you tell me what you thought of the potato fingers? They were really excellent. I like the crispiness of it. They were lovely. So what would you say if I were to tell you that some of the ingredients in those fritters came from a dumpster? A dumpster? A few days before that party, I was in a dumpster. It was cramped, loud, dark, illegal. Goodness. Oh my goodness. What it wasn't? Smelly. It was chock full of veggies. Bok choy. Love Erica and James do this all the time. Can you have the scissors? Their favorite spot to dumpster dive? Behind a co-op. One of DC's finest. But I'm not going to tell you which one. Jalapenos? Jalapenos? Why a co-op? Because the dumpster is emptied all the time. The food's in closed bags. Usually, it's only in the trash because it's expired. The two of them inspect everything before taking it. Sprouts? I'm going to leave sprouts. Really? Sprouts go bad and give you, like, botulism or something crazy. They even know what to do with stuff that's too mushy to eat. Some greens for the ladies? Greens for the ladies. And by ladies, we mean chickens. (laughs) That's what we call them. In just 20 minutes, we've got peppers, oranges, strawberries, potatoes, spinach, bok choy. You got some washing to do. (laughs) After the dive, I took my potatoes and peppers home and scrubbed them. Scrubbed them hard, smelled them, squeezed them. I had my doubts. So I turned to the internet. What should I do about the eyes? Are they really poisonous? What are these purple spots? What are potatoes supposed to smell like? What's the worst that could happen? Could I die? I can't tell you how many times I was on allaboutpotatoes.com. After all that, I was confident. This food was as safe as I could make it. So I was ready for an experiment, a risky one. I decided to feed people garbage, not tell them, and see how they reacted. A party in Petworth was the perfect opportunity. So I peeled, chopped, grated, fried. I brought recycled potato fritters to a potluck. A dumpster? Seriously? Yeah. Well, actually, I think that's really entrepreneurial. And uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure it won't make us sick. Are you guys just being really nice because you don't know me? Yeah. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you don't really want to know. Yeah. Do it. Why? Because because we all say we hate to waste food, especially here in DC. But sometimes there's no clear line between food and trash. I wanted to see if people could really tell the difference, even if it meant taking them out of their comfort zone. I'd have to think about it a little bit more. I totally see where you're coming from. Yeah, they uh, need to have a label on it, though. But it's, uh, it's a bit odd. Would I dive again? Definitely. Would I feed people trash again without telling them? Probably not. But take it from me. Home-cooked garbage tastes great. That was reporter Carrie Klein. She originally produced this story for the 2013 Third Coast Short Docs Challenge, a program of the Third Coast International Audio Festival. Have a banana, Anna. Try the salami, Tommy. Give it to Gravy, Davy. Everybody eats when they come to my house.
Time now to chew on a little literature as we bring you Bookend, our regular discussion with local authors. Today, we'll meet Marie Arana, a literary fixture in the D.C. region. Her latest work is a biography of the Venezuelan military and political leader, Simón Bolívar. Jonathan Wilson met Arana inside the Madison Building at the Library of Congress, where she serves as a distinguished scholar. Most people in Washington probably know you through the Washington Post book world. A lot of people may know your other work, but if they don't, you have written all types of books, from novels, um, nonfiction. First of all, have you always seen yourself as just a writer in general, a book reviewer? How, how did things get started for you as a writer? Well, um, it's a long story, but I started out actually as an editor. I worked for two publishing houses, two book publishing houses in New York, Simon & Schuster and Harcourt Brace. And then I hopped the fence and, and went to criticism at the Washington Post and worked there for 17 years as uh, the books editor. And I'm still a writer at large at the Post, so you'll see my pieces over there. And it's true, all my books have been very different, um, but I tell people, in fact, they're all part of the same building, in a sense. I've been trying to build a building in which a, I explain to American readers who Latin Americans are, how we think, um, you know, how our history has been so different and um, so even the novels, which are, you know, based on my family, the memoir also, which was of my childhood, and now this biography of a quintessential Latin American hero. So it all is actually of a piece, even though it doesn't look that way. In terms of your latest book, uh, a biography of Simone Bolivar, as I was reading it, I was thinking, would she have written this if she wasn't in Washington, D.C., so steeped in this country's history? Would you have written the same book or written this book at all? That's a really good question, Jonathan. And I think, um, in fact, you're a little right about that. You begin to think about power and how people get it and how people lose it when you live in Washington, D.C. And certainly um, Bolivar's story is exactly about gaining power out of nowhere and then losing it drastically. Uh, it's a really dramatic adventure story, and it was um, it, probably very colored by the fact that I was sitting in Washington, D.C. I've always thought of it as something I was always sort of meant to write because I had two ancestors who fought in the, uh, in the um, defining battle of Ayacucho, which was the last battle in Bolivar's Wars for Independence. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, uh, I would not have been drawn to it had I not been here. I think you're absolutely right. What does your schedule look like? Is it, do you write the same time of day? Do you write in the same place? I know we've talked before, you travel quite a bit. You like writing in different places, uh, going to South America and, and writing, being in the place that you're writing about. Um, but yeah, is there a particular pattern? Well, um, I'm lucky to have worked at a newspaper because um, the sense of deadline is always there, and I don't have, I can't afford to suffer the blank page syndrome. Uh, Something's got to go down. Uh, So what I do is I'm doing, I do my best writing. when the sun goes down. <laughs> I wish it weren't that way because I end up, you know, at four in the morning still writing. Uh, but, I, but that's when I'm most creative, at night when everything's quiet and I've got, you know, a room to myself and no phones are ringing. Um, and then I get up the next day and I am that mean, nasty editor that I just told you about and I just, I go through what I've written the night before. Uh, the, when I'm writing at first, you know, I feel like I'm 
it's disastrous. I mean, I feel like I'm not getting what I want down, um, but I do it anyway. I, I put it down, I, you know, you, and it's, it's a muddy mess. The next morning when I get up and I slap it around, it gets better. How do you find being living in D.C. has affected you as a writer, um, as a, yeah, as a creative person? Well, D.C. has this phenomenal um, characteristic, which is it changes every four years. Um, I, I, we're looking out the window at the Capitol building. That Capitol building has been here, uh, it seems, forever. It's a historical monument in this city, but the people in it change all the time. And you get that sense in Washington, which is a very sort of refreshing in a way. Um, it is a, a city that's constantly redefining itself, depending on who puts the people here to, to do it. Um, and, and, and there's something, I think, that um, is, is actually inspiring for a writer in that sense. You're not stuck. You know, you're, you're, it's moving. It's a moving target all the time. That was Bolivar author Marie Arana speaking with WAMU's Jonathan Wilson. Do you have a favorite local author you'd like to hear on Bookend? If so, send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. Or zap us an email. Our address is metro at WAMU.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, Kapita Cardoza, Brian Russo, and Jared Walker, along with reporter Carrie Klein. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Eva Harder. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website. That's metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website, too. Just click the This Week on Metro Connection link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there, or you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll present a show for all you newbies out there. We're calling it Rookies. We'll meet a first-time musician with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, and we'll hit the field with members of D.C.'s new professional tackle football team for women. I've had more injuries dancing professionally than I have playing football. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.